You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 21, in which the gladiator returns to challenge our horned hero to combat. Get ready for a full case of the crazies and mailage. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show all about Marvel's lawyer by day, superhero by night, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. Each week I bring a Daredevil comic to the table, I break down the story, the art, everything that goes into it, and present it here for you, for your listening enjoyment and edification. This week I continue the year-long read-through of Frank Miller's Daredevil comics from the original run. At this stage, Frank is beginning to show more input into the stories, and his art is starting to move into the more familiar Frank Miller style. This week, we also see the return of the Gladiator. Remember Melvin Potter from episode 3 of the show? Sure you do. And that was kind of the plan, as I was kind of etching out the show's first year or so, I pulled books that were not only good, in some places sentimental, but also issues that built on the Daredevil mythology. The hope or the goal was that even though I wasn't covering every issue or appearance of Daredevil in order, there would still be a bit of an understanding, a sort of a knowledge base built from when we hit the Miller run. What I basically did as I was planning this show was put the issues I wanted to cover in chronological order. I added some of the key issues thanks to a handy key issue list at manwithoutfear.com and built toward the Miller run. Now I say that to say this. I decided to do a preliminary run at what the show's 2015 content would be. I fired up the old spreadsheet just to throw ideas at, just earmark them, and folks, it flew right out of me. I quickly had every episode filled in in under an hour or so, and I checked it, I went back and rechecked it, I rechecked it again. And every time I rechecked it, I nodded in approval, I got more and more excited. I decided essentially to reset the clock with the conclusion of the Frank Miller run and throw in some miniseries. Just before starting this episode, I looked at it one more time to make sure that it stood up, and yeah, sure it does. So 2015 is looking awesome, as is the rest of 2014 as we continue this read-through. Lots and lots of Daredevil goodness. And this is a bit of a tangent, but kind of on topic since it relates to Frank Miller. In 1996, the first comic shop I ever saw moved to a new location. Now, their main claim to fame was that everything in the store could be bought, displays, everything. And I kind of challenged that notion because on the wall was this 3D10 sign of the Dark Knight from 1985. He's got his dukes put up. He's stepping out of the Batmobile about to fight some mutants. Being a fan of the story, I wanted to know how much for the sign. Four hundred dollars. Four hundred See, their trick was, yeah, it was for sale, but if they didn't want to sell it, they're going to jack up the price. So, of course, I wanted it. I wanted it more than, since it was clearly valuable. Now, this week, I found that sign and bought it for 30 bucks on eBay, and it sits only feet from me now. Somehow, I wish I could just go back in time and give it to my teenage self or late teen, early adult self, if you want to be technical. Just to say, one day, if you work hard, you can have all the nerd stuff you want. There's going to be this great thing called eBay, and you're going to become addicted. You're going to spend most of your mornings looking out the window waiting for UPS. But I felt like that was a nice little victory for me, and I just wanted to share it with you. Now, in the here and now, we have more Daredevil goodness. As stated, the Gladiator is in this week's issue, and he is completely nutso, which makes for some 
well, some decent reading, and some good talking. So as usual, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and when we come back, Daredevil number 166. We need to do a new promo. A new one? A new one. Why? Because we've moved. Moved? Moved. We've moved to a new place. We still read comics. We do. We still talk about comics. Because you can't do a comic book podcast unless you read and talk about comics, because that's kind of stupid. But now, we have a new episode still available every Thursday, but at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hey Kids Comics! So remember, Hey Kids Comics has moved to twotruefreaks.libson.com. Still, every Thursday. That'll do, won't it? Welcome back. Daredevil 166 is the September 1980 issue, which means that it came out the same month as Uncanny X-Men number 137, which was a slightly more famous issue. Why? Because that was the final issue of the Dark Phoenix Saga, which means that it held the death of Jean Grey. Kind of a seminal issue in the realm of comics, and one that had a lasting effect on me. Now, I didn't read it when it came out, because... I didn't have any frame of reference for the X-Men, and, well, I was three years old. But this got me thinking, and I want to comment on something a bit. I'm going to take a sidebar here, because I read it in a trade paperback in about 2000, 2001, when I was getting back into comics. Now, I knew the fate of Jean Grey. I mean, her eventual fate of returning from the dead, joining X-Factor, so on and so forth. But, even knowing the end of the story itself and the character's path, that reading experience floored me. It's comparable to the night Gwen Stacy died for me, which is a, it's a very emotional story for me. You can know how a story plays out, but the actual reading of it, to see the images, the words, everything flowing, it can change things. In both the death of Gwen Stacy and the death of Jean Grey, I went in knowing what was going to happen, in fact, how it happened. It's no secret. But just by, you know, looking at the context of the stories, I mean, really looking at the context, being knee-deep in it, it took me out of the mentality of looking at the nuts and bolts of a comic and into experiencing the story itself as it flowed. The lesson and what I want to say is, if you hear of a story, no matter how seminal, how much you know about the story, read it. Seek it out, read it, experience it, don't just wiki it. Don't Google it, read the story. Don't let a podcast be your sole experience with a character or a story. If it entices you, go find it. We live in an age when comics are easily purchased online and collected inexpensively. Seek them out, read them, and that definitely applies to the Daredevil stories I cover. If an issue sounds like your cup of tea, I put links to the digital issues on show notes, and of course I mention the reprints. Take a look at them. But we do have an issue to cover. So speaking of the cover... Let's look at the cover to Daredevil number 166. Daredevil lies wrapped in a net on the ground of a Roman arena with the villainous gladiator standing over him, raising a trident up to strike. Around them in the stands are the forms of many spectators giving the thumbs down signal, meaning death for Daredevil. First of all, the big thing, the icon box in the upper left hand corner of the cover is updated. It previously showed an older image of Daredevil standing with his arms crossed and the radar sense radiating off of him. Now... 
a shadowy daredevil runs at the reader, whipping out his billy cub with a skyscraper in the background. I'll say this, it's a mood setter. It's a great image. It says there's a new sheriff in town and Daredevil is getting darker and grittier. Now the icon box, this one, will be around for a while during the run, but we will gain an alternate box later down the road. I dig this look. I dig the shadows. It fits with the more hard-boiled mood of the book in the direction it's heading. However, the cover itself kind of fails on that promise. I mean, the composition is off. It's boring in a way. Not only do we get a big, huge yellow banner ad along the top telling us that this comic could be worth $2,500 to you. A banner ad, really? It was just, it was on all of the Marvel comics this month, including that iconic cover of X-Men 137, which by all reports pissed off John Byrne since it totally screwed up the composition of that cover. I don't know what the contest was. I couldn't find it anywhere, but I'm surprised that it's still preserved even in the omnibus reprints. Little photoshopping couldn't fix it? And maybe that threw this cover off because Daredevil and Gladiator are way off center and they blend into the background a bit. And the line work, man, is really sloppy. You know what? It looks over-inked is what I think. It looks like Jansen's inks got runny. And this may have been a piece that Miller did some rough layouts for and let Jansen run with the art a bit, but it's lackluster. And the story inside the cover is Till Death Do Us Part, written by Roger McKenzie, co-plotted and penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Jansen, lettered by Joe Rosen, and colored by Glennis Ween. And it opens up with Matt enjoying a workout at the Brownstone when Heather comes to fetch him for the big day, Foggy's wedding. Meanwhile, across town at the Dibney Museum of Human History, a social worker named Betsy Beatty and a group of children are taking a tour that leads them directly to the display of Melvin Potter, a.k.a. the Gladiator's armor. It's on display as part of an exhibit looking at man and their weaponry through the ages, which basically includes a lot of villain mannequins. Unknown to everyone around, Betsy was actually Melvin's social worker as the tour moves on. But, as if by providence or because he was following Betsy, Melvin Potter himself shows up and kills a security guard in order to put his armor back on and spread terror as the gladiator once more. Things quickly escalate as Gladiator takes the museum, including Betsy and her group of children, hostage. Okay, the opening scene is another breathtaking set of images. Daredevil's in this pitch black room hanging on some gymnastic rings, and it's followed by shots of Daredevil flipping, dropping, spinning all the way down to Heather in the doorway, which is where the only light is. I have to say, I actually love the shot of Heather looking at Matt. She looks awed by him, which is how it should be. Now, before I'm accused of being misogynistic with that comment, let me be clear on what I am actually saying. Matt is an amazing person. He is capable of amazing things, so Heather has seemed to be basically annoyed by the things Matt can do. So for once, she sees Matt doing something that is awesome sauce, and she looks like she actually feels something for him. This is not, not me saying that a woman should look at a man like the odd look on Heather's face. It's more based on the circumstances Heather should be looking at Matt like this because he's doing something wicked cool. And I will add for fairness that while I like the shot, it is Miller showing off a bit. However, it's the most high-octane part of the issue. Which, yeah, that shows a lot of promise, right? It just works, though. It, it adds a colon-esque flourish, but in a scene that simply serves to set up that Foggy is getting married. It feels a bit over the top here. Not a lot of function, but it looks cool. Speaking of that, I have a big question. We see the gladiator's armor on display at the museum, which doesn't seem to be named after the elongated man, but... Why are the blades kept razor sharp for a display that has no glass around it and no rope? If some kid decides to reach out, they may lose a digit. 
And sure, yes, you can say there's a security guard there. I see him. He's got his back to the statue and the tour itself. I mean, we've got a lawsuit waiting to happen. Or the villain conveniently having access to his weapons once again. I mean, sure, we gotta lay the groundwork, right? Now, I wanted to balk at Melvin's former social worker just happening to show up at the museum where her former patient is staging a psychotic break. However, that is directly addressed by the fact that Melvin tells Betsy that he was following her. And sure, it's a still a bit coincidental, I guess, that this was the museum that Betsy went to. It happened to be talking about the man and his weaponry, so it's filled with mannequins of villains. But still, this was going to happen anyway. Melvin was getting a bit more crazy and started to really get into character to the point that he believed himself to be an actual Roman gladiator. He was last seen in a fairly lackluster villain team-up tale in issue 154, but one of my favorite gladiator issues was issue 63. This is where Foggy created an awesome gambit to trick Melvin, who was pretending to have no recollection of being the gladiator and attacking Foggy, and it, it basically Foggy sets it up so Melvin puts on the armor. And of course, he tries to escape. Melvin tries to get out of the prison, and Daredevil beats him down and proves that actually he does remember it. So good on you, Foggy. I'm going to be talking about that a little bit. It's Foggy's big day. The big wedding. So let's take a look at the next leg of this issue to see how the impending Nupitals begin to play out. Across town, Foggy and Matt are suiting up for the Nupitals when Foggy's family arrives along with Foggy's old college chum, Porkchop Peterson. Ugh. There's some pre-wedding conversation during which Foggy realizes to his horror that he has lost Debbie's wedding ring. Meanwhile, the gladiator continues to be the paragon of sanity and stability as he sends a child out of the museum with a letter demanding that the city send him a champion to fight. Melvin tries to put the moves on Betsy but finds himself rebuffed and convinces himself that he must win her heart through combat. So they wait for the champion to arrive. Elsewhere, Matt and Porkchop are sharing a cab to Foggy's wedding when Matt hears about the gladiator's hostile takeover and vanishes, leaving Porkchop alone in the cab. So before we get to the big fisticuffs with Daredevil and the gladiator throwing down, let's talk about Foggy and his bride, Debbie Harris. This is a romance that goes way back on a couple of levels. First of all, she appeared in Daredevil number 10, and there she was re-meeting Foggy on a boat. She was working with the organizer, though, and his unholy three. And yes, the unholy three who were Ape Man, Bird Man, and Frog Man. No, your ears do not deceive. Hornhead actually has two frog-themed villains in this pantheon. Anyway, Deb was working to mess with Foggy, and Matt was working to expose her. And when Foggy saw that Matt was right, it caused a split between Nelson and Murdoch. Now, they got back together because they're Nelson and Murdoch. You can't break that up. Secondly, in terms of how far back this romance goes, we learn that in that first appearance, Foggy has been in love with Deb since junior high. So poor Foggy, the woman he loves, basically jacked his world up. He was heartbroken. But Debbie returned in issue 36 after she got paroled from jail for the whole affair and actually asked Foggy out to dinner. Now come on, that takes some balls. You scheme against a guy with a villain, go to jail, and then come back to ask for a date? I don't know whether to be disgusted or impressed. Either way, they got together, despite the fact that being with Deb was bad for his campaign for DA, and the rest is sort of history. And Deb has been a consistent character through the book, more in the background. She's kind of there. She pops up to become relevant here and there, but mostly just background. Porkchop Peterson has not, and thankfully will not, be a constant character in the book. Thankfully, this is his only appearance, which comforts me greatly, because... Seeing Foggy and Porkchop do their handshake makes me think of Scooby-Doo and his cousin Scooby-Dumb. 
I feel like Phyllis Diller or Don Knotts should be guesting on this one. I don't know. Less said on Porkchop, the better. And I'm a guy who likes Mike Murdoch, so that should tell you something right there. Now, also in this scene in Foggy's family is Candace Nelson. Now, on top of being the name of a judge on a show called Cupcake Wars, and I swear that woman makes eating cupcakes sexy. Yeah, sexy cupcakes. Anyway, Candace Nelson, Foggy's sister, was a recurring character who first appeared in Daredevil 108. So I pulled out the old essential and took a look at that issue, only to have Mike Murdock suddenly be validated. I know, that seems out of nowhere. Where did that come from? Let me explain. The meeting between Candace and Matt takes place in a hospital room where Foggy is laid up. Matt mentions that in all of their years of friendship, Foggy never mentioned a sister, so it is plausible that Foggy would likewise be unaware of any twin brothers that Matt has. That's not the intention of Candace, that's not the intention of the line, that's just a bit of a retcon. However, suddenly I found myself realizing that Foggy could well believe that Matt would have a twin brother, especially when he's on par with Mike Murdoch. And speaking of Candace and a nice piece of kismet, issue 113 saw Candace as a journalism student who was kidnapped by... The Gladiator. See, it all fits together, and I love it when a plan comes together. Speaking of The Gladiator, you know what? I'm going to do something different. Instead of taking the very easy, ready-made segue that would make this smooth, let's make it just an awkward transition, just for giggles. Hey, you guys remember Muscle Figures, the little pink guys that were all rubbery? Those things were awesome. The 80s were great. Now back to Daredevil 166. An hour has passed at the museum and the gladiator is ready to kill a kid when Daredevil calls the villain out. Hiding in plain sight within the statues of his own villains, Daredevil begins to fight the gladiator throughout the museum. The fight ends up in a mock Roman gladiator arena, where the gladiator overpowers Daredevil and is about to do the bidding of the Caesar statue who's giving the thumbs down. But as Gladiator is momentarily distracted, Daredevil rebounds and manages to lay a solid barrage of blows on him, bringing Melvin to his knees. With the villain incapacitated, Betsy comes into the arena to try to reach Melvin as the Gladiator looks at the statue of Caesar, who stares back with his thumb pointing down, disappointed. And the issue wraps with Matt arriving at the church a bit late for the ceremony and Foggy finding the ring on his own finger. And the rest of the wedding goes off without a hitch as the issue closes. So let me start at the end of the issue here because it's kind of front and center in my mind. To me, Foggy's wedding is kind of a big deal. He and Debbie have been together for so long, but Foggy is simply played for cheap laughs, which is the role he had been relegated to for far, far too long. And I'm sorry, I am sorry, but Foggy is important to Matt, to Daredevil, to this book. You can kill Heather, Karen, Electra, and Matt will be unhinged for a while. He's knee-deep in girls. But Foggy? You kill Foggy? Something bad happens to Foggy? Matt's done for. He can't survive that. Not with his sanity intact. Foggy is Matt's rock in so many ways. Not only does he keep Matt grounded and sane, but he will call Matt on his crap. He is Matt's Jiminy Cricket. They may not always get along or see eye to eye, but that's the way of brothers. These two are connected. This is the true romance of Daredevil. If there's ever been a friendship in comics that shows what real brotherhood is like, it's Nelson and Murdoch. These guys can split up. They can be just absolutely angry with each other and the verge of killing each other. Eventually, they're going to come back to each other. That's their connection. Foggy has taken a lot of Matt's crap, and every time he will eventually come back. And that's even when Matt pushes Foggy to the absolute brink. In fact, I'll go as far as to say I think it's a massive understatement to call Foggy important. I mean, he is vital. He is necessary. He is essential to Matt and Daredevil. 
and any writer that puts Foggy on the bench as simply comic relief is basically missing the entire point of Foggy's existence and taking a big piece of the puzzle off the table for Matt. Losing the ring, Porkchop Peterson, a Spock poster in his apartment, these things just make Foggy look like he should be wearing clown shoes. I'm not saying Foggy shouldn't be funny because he's a goofy guy. But the wedding of Foggy and Deb should have been treated with more respect. There's a scene where the Reverend asks Deb if she's sure she wants to go through with this. And it doesn't play like a solid comedy bit, it plays like camp. I'm always frustrated when I feel like the Benny Hill theme should be playing when Foggy walks in the room. That's not Foggy. Yes, again, he's a goofy guy. But he's also the heart and soul of Daredevil. He's Matt's true, true partner. So I just want to say that it's just a bit of annoyance and this issue really brought it to the forefront. Now that I've gotten that off my chest, let me jump back a bit in the story to compliment Glennis Ween for a really great effect. As Daredevil is casing out the museum, there's a really great shot where Daredevil, really he exists in this void of radar sense. There's no forms. And that's good on Miller as well. That's a great idea. Because it shows how immersive the radar world is for Matt. But the choice of using Baby Blue to illustrate this, it just really sells it because it feels cool. I mean, temperature-wise. It feels like being underwater, which is sort of a step in the right direction for Matt's radar being depicted. Nowadays, with uh, Chris Samney, Paolo Rivera, we have a nice sort of grid pattern type thing. At that time, this is a step forward from just the simple radiating rings. Now, also depicted in the displays are mannequins of other Marvel villains. Spider-Man's rogues are represented by the Rhino, the Scorpion, and Mysterio. Daredevil gets Masked, Marauder, Stiltman, and Frogman. I mean, that's who you pull out for a museum exhibit on weapons? The Rhino and the Scorpion, they wear destructive armor suits. Mysterio uses illusions as weapons. That's technological, that is weaponry. The Masked Marauder is basically forgotten and mostly just planned and brooded. Lots of brooding. Now, that's a skill, but it is not a weapon. Now, Frogman, he had a suit that made him frog-like. I've never heard any stories involving weaponized frogs. Now, maybe in that weird phenomenon where they rain from the heavens, which is a very real event, but that's an accident of nature, not something used for war. To me, Stiltman is the only one who makes sense out of this group of Daredevil villains, thanks to his wicked, stilted armor. Now, that's not accounting for the gladiator, but... You put any of these three against a pissed-off, raging rhino or scorpion, and they're screwed, even if the rhino is Paul Giamatti. Now, I don't put the gladiator on the list of lackluster daredevil villains. Melvin's a match. He's interesting. He's a competent fighter. However, I kind of had to put this issue on the lackluster list of daredevil comics, which is a shame. On top of turning Foggy's wedding into a B or C story and a farce playing in the background, it just isn't interesting as a single issue. Now, it does give us some things that are going to be built on later, but the Gladiator is played with really hazy goals. At least overall, I mean, I get that he wants Betsy. He has hostages, and he believes that besting somebody in combat will win Betsy's heart. Now, wait, what? Where did that come from? It's basically just a simple setup for Daredevil to fight the villain, and it plays all weird. The fight itself is not intense, it's not as visually cool as the Doc Ock fight last issue, and the stakes just aren't as plain. Last time we had Heather in danger, Daredevil's on the ropes. This time, Daredevil never really feels in danger. And as I mentioned, the acrobatics shown at the beginning of the issue for a random scene with Heather don't bother showing up here. Nor does Miller explore the space of the page like he did in 165. We take a step backwards. 
This could have been a very visceral, intense battle, but it falls back into ho-hum shots of the fight and tight panels with very little in the way of standout action. Now, I'm not opposed to an action-centric issue. I'm fine with that. But here, the gladiator, sure, he gets some good blows in. But it's rudimentary fighting. We know how this is going to play out. Gladiator's going to get distracted. Daredevil's going to overcome. Now, in last issue's fight, sure, just story logic, we know Daredevil was going to come out on top. We just didn't know how he was going to do it. The only strong suit of this fight and this issue is Betsy's assessment of Melvin as being essentially a child. Now, that is something to chew on. Melvin being this adult with a child's mind puts a nice, solid stamp on the character. It fills in this gap that we didn't get when the character debuted. When we first met him, Melvin was a shop owner who hated heroes and wanted to prove the effectiveness of weapons. Why? We really didn't know outside of just a case of the crazies. But if Melvin is essentially operating on the level of, say, like an 8-year-old or 9-year-old, the possibilities become endless in terms of his perspective in terms of motivation, and in terms of what his imagination can bring him to do. Try to think back, because at that age, it's still possible in your own head to be a superhero on career day. There might actually be a monster in the closet. Melvin's brain working from that perspective not only makes him frightening because he can throw himself whole hog into villainy with no restrictions, but it also makes him endearing. While I like Bullseye because he's just pure evil, no remorse, I think I like that the gladiator is a genuinely unfortunate victim of mental illness. Now, he's functioning to some extent as an adult and a human being, but he can't see the world in any clear way. His faculties are muddy, and it is genuinely touching to have somebody like Betsy who wants to help him and sees him for what he is. Melvin is trying his best to overcome this mental state, and sadly every card on the deck is stacked against him. It's a truly revelatory statement on the character. I mean, it's something that's been there, but at least it puts a fine note on it. Now, that makes a mediocre issue stand out a little more for being so astute. Unfortunately, everything good about this issue happens on one page. Everything else is just lackluster. It never really sucked me in. It was by the books, and it downplayed the most important aspect, which is Foggy, making this big leap forward for the man. Because Foggy's come a long way from pretending to be Daredevil to impress Karen Page. And I think that deserved to be recognized. But if you want to take a look at this issue, it is reprinted in Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 1 Trade Paperback, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen Omnibus, and as always, Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. And that brings this week's episode to an end. And usually I do read your emails here, as I mentioned last week. This is a string of episodes to be recorded nearly back-to-back to maintain a lead time. But if you have thoughts on my thoughts or the issues at hand or Daredevil as a whole, the email is dave at daredevilpodcast.com or at the handy form at daredevilpodcast.com itself. You can also reach out on Facebook, Twitter, leaving comments on individual show notes, whichever you choose. Now next week, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, even though it's hyped at the end of this, the Punisher won't be in next week's episode. True story. He's teased here, but Daredevil 167 has a zero Punisher to comic ratio. Instead, get ready to meet the mauler who is not in any way what you would expect. Until next week, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger's near. There's devil fight for what is right. There's devil fight for you tonight.
You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders and no infringement is intended. I am Dave and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast.